I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Berbari. 60 days out from Election Day 2020. This is The Swing 2020. I'm Chris Baccia. He's Emmanuel Barbari, and we welcome you back to our podcast. We are just 60 days away to Election Day 2020, and the campaign has begun in earnest, Emmanuel. I think we can really say that we have entered the home stretch. We are in the month of September. There are less than two months of campaigning still to do. And then on November 3rd, all of the votes will be in. And we've been previewing the fact that we will not have a result on Election Day 2020 in all likelihood. But we will get somewhat closer um, to reaching uh, a conclusion about this very intense presidential election. And Emmanuel, now we're at a phase where it really feels like we are in campaign 2020, whereas beforehand, we were sort of in a weird pandemic phase, but now we're campaigning for president. And once you pass the conventions, you get to a point where people mark Labor Day as the time where the general election campaigns really hit the head. But this year, as you mentioned, so much different in the sense that no one has been running the traditional campaign less rallies, less enthusiasm, less stop-to-stop type campaigns. But now you have it in full swing. You even have Vice President Biden making trips to crucial swing states after the polls did tighten a little bit after the RNC. So I think the conventions are that great marker of you start to feel it getting closer. And as we are recording this, we're only a day removed from the two-month mark until election day, or as you said, what might be election week or election month. So you do start to get excited and you do start to anticipate that day creeping closer and closer. There's a lot of excitement for a lot of voters who are excited and enthused to go vote in 2020. Um, This is an election that we anticipate will jack up turnout and in large part because lots of Americans will be filing their votes by mail. If you want to get more information on that and all of the controversy swirled around it, we did an episode on that in our last uh, 70 days out uh, where we talked about mail-in ballots. And that's a huge factor and we'll continue to uh, follow it for you. But in this episode, we really want to look thematically at the two campaigns on the heels of both conventions, the Democratic National Conventions, now a full two weeks ago, and the Republicans convened a full week ago. And we now meet you after having watched both of those. 
And I think we have a better idea of what strokes both are trying to uh, take and how each one wants to frame their vision for America. I think the DNC, Emmanuel, very clearly set out to humanize its nominee in Vice President Biden. I think it was all about making him look like a man and a good man and contrasting that with a man in the White House who uh, Democrats don't highly believe is a good man. I think that is a central contrast. I think Republicans are talking about the weakness of the Democratic nominee and talking about the strength of the current president. And what they're doing, and this is sort of the thing that befuddles me, is the Republicans are running on the idea that the civil unrest and the general American unrest, the political discord that you see um, right now is sort of a, it's sort of a preview of the Joe Biden America. Whereas of course, right now it's taking place in Donald Trump's America. Right. At the same time, the Republicans are running on the idea that what you're seeing in cities across America is what you will see in Joe Biden's America if he's elected. And a crucial point of the two convention weeks is of course, the happenings in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is a national issue now. It's a continuation of the racial injustice, racial unrest that has taken up a large portion of this election year, really overshadowed the RNC while they tried to react to it, while they tried to portray strength based on it. It really was the story of that week, not the Republican National Convention. The DNC, of course, preceding the happenings in Kenosha with Jacob Blake shot by a police officer seven times in the back was more of a, this is what's happened this year. Let's preach unity, at least as Vice President Biden's speech would say. Let's preach togetherness, the lightness, being an ally of the light, not the darkness. And then you have the RNC, which is more of, let's show what President Trump has done and let's show what is happening on his watch yet, let's call it what could be Joe Biden's America. It was a little bit of a confusing message. And President Trump did seem to have more togetherness, Americanness theme to his convention. But at the same time, the message continues to be mixed as to how they're going to define Biden and make their case for a second term. Because if you're going to take unrest that's happening under your watch, your president of the United States, and shove it on the other campaign, I'm not sure how that's going to define Joe Biden moving forward. Well, here's the thing that makes the Republican pitch difficult to make. And uh, I, I am very curious to see if they can have success with it because you're the, the, the thing that Donald Trump ran on in 2016 is fundamentally different in 2020 when he's the sitting president and now he has to run on optimism. And you're actually hearing, I, I believe you heard the word hope and optimism out of his mouth. Those aren't words um, that have ever defined his political persona. He never has had success on the ideas of hope and optimism. That's not the case for the former vice president who ran along with Barack Obama and those were the themes of his campaign. But Donald Trump doesn't have success when he runs on American uh, greatness. He ran on the idea in 2016 that America was failing to be the, the great country that it once was. And that's a tough claim to make because the RNC was centralized around the theme that America is great. Um, 
And this is fundamentally at odds with what he has run on, how he has built his political success. A point about the DNC that I'll make is Joe Biden and all of the DNC speakers spoke without crowd reaction. They spoke um, in a solemn way with darkness behind them often and no audience response, no audience enthusiasm, no cheering. And I actually think this was really symbolic of the American moment that we're in. Global pandemic has claimed the lives of more than 170,000. That, that number keeps going up. And at this point, more than 8% of Americans are unemployed. And we figured those numbers are going to go up and they may actually be higher. When you have a Democratic National Convention that speaks in that darkness, I, I think you drive the message home of this is a grim moment of America in America and we need change. And I think that's the driving message. I mean, I don't want to back the message. I just believe at this point, Emmanuel, that there is more strength in it. There is more currency in it to an American people that is really suffering right now. And so much has happened since that we didn't even get to hit on initially, how it was the first ever virtual convention. They actually succeeded in it without a hitch. From a technical production standpoint, there were really no hiccups. All the speeches were executed and hit the message, hit the tone. And the main critique of it, at least from the RNC side, is it was too dark. It didn't represent what America is, has been, and can be moving forward. And that's why before I would say the RNC more achieved the mission of making people feel like they still live in the United States of America and that hope and promise is there. The DNC more focused on the fact that we're not living up to that promise right now. Emphasize it, emphasize it, emphasize it. And we're the people who can bring it back. And then Kenosha put a twist on the entire thing. And that became the overarching issue of the two weeks. So it's hard to know whether the conventions even move the needle at all, because I still think the overarching themes at the end of the day are going to be how the economy is looking, how the response to COVID-19 is looking, the racial injustice will certainly be brought up, but will the Jacob Blake tragedy in Kenosha, Wisconsin end up being something that defines Vice President Biden? I'm not sure. And recent polling would indicate that he's more trusted to handle racial unrest. So it's not like that frame is really being effective and those latter days of the RNC are moving the needle in this entire campaign. I do think that what was really a string of police killings, and in the case of Jacob Blake, a police shooting that paralyzed the man, um, I do believe that whether it's George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery, whichever one most emotionally affected you, I do think that voters have that on their consciousness, on their I believe that they're very conscientious of that, whether implicitly or explicitly, when they go to the polls, um, whether they're voting in support of law enforcement or they are voting in support um, of of redeeming or um, you know redeeming racial wrongs that that we have committed. I, I think those are very emotional strands for either side, and I do think voters are going to the polls on that. And here's where some of the polling is interesting. And this comes from Wall Street Journal, NBC News um, survey of uh, 900 voters. And what they come back to us is what on the surface looks to be, I would say, plus Biden looks to be favorable for Biden. But let's look a little further because it has Biden up 16 points on Donald Trump in terms of how he'll handle the global pandemic. 
It has Joe Biden up 23 on unity, and that's a very broad sort of intangible thing. It has Biden up 24 on race. These are massive margins, by the way. Go to Trump. He's up 10 on economy. He's up four on crime. While the margins, and if you added all the margins up together, you would say that that Wall Street Journal NBC News poll is very favorable for the Biden camp. But I see it a little differently because I look at an economy figure and a crime figure that represent far more existential fears for Americans. And you could maybe say the same about COVID, but economy, when we're talking about people's jobs and crime, when we're talking about their safety on the streets of their cities and suburbs, I do believe that that is a critical number for the president. And it's clearly something he's running on, Emmanuel. And when you see him go to Kenosha and not talk about racial justice or a racial history, um, but you see him double down on law and order, it's clear that the Trump campaign knows this and they are pivoting from making this campaign about the pandemic or school reopenings, which you saw the former vice president uh, home in on. It's, they don't want to make it about that. They see those crime numbers and they know that that is something tangible um, that they can rally Americans behind and, and get Americans to the polls for the president's case in November. And that's a pivot that really goes against what's currently happening under the administration, COVID, the economy, which is currently on its way back in some respects, but still very much underwater, and twisting it more towards what got President Trump elected in the first place, that, that strength projected on the ability to build the economy, keep jobs in America, law and order, strength on crime. So the fact that those numbers are strong and haven't wavered in those two categories go to show you why President Trump is still very much in this ballgame. Because even when his numbers were completely underwater in about mid-June, when everything rippled down from the George Floyd situation, he was still in a strong position on the economy. He was still in a strong position on crime. And those are two issues that are going to carry over in every single election, not only in a year unlike any we've seen here in 2020, because those are issues that affect Americans on a daily basis. And just talk about existential threats. What are you worried about as a human being, human nature? You're worried about your ability to stay safe and provide for your family. Those are just existential factors. So the, the longer he stays strong on those issues, and it appears it's going to remain that way all the way to November, he has a fighting chance because there is no way that those other issues, aside from COVID, which is right up with the other two, are going to surpass people's views on the economy and views on staying safe for themselves and their families. And when you look at a moment of crisis in America, it, it, it certainly begs the question of whether people's fears will favor someone that they may perceive as strong or someone that they may perceive to be stronger on these things that really do affect their livelihood. I think early on, my thinking was that crisis in America would have favored the challenger. And I think there's some wisdom to that. An America that is as broken as ours is, is an America that might favor someone who wants to unseat the president under which everything collapsed. That would be the conventional election wisdom. But Donald Trump is casting Joe Biden as weak. That was the word that he used in his acceptance speech. I don't think that weakness is um, an attribute that a ton of people 
would uh, vehemently disagree with when attributed to the former vice president. He does not have a lot of might when he speaks behind a microphone. Strength is not a quality that he runs on. He runs on pragmatism, maybe being cerebral, maybe maybe it's being uh, soulful, I think it is, is something we've talked about on the podcast. He doesn't run on strength. So when we look at 2020, strength may favor the president, and that could be essential. And that's why the humanizing message was so crucially important in the DNC, because the Democrats are not going to try to sell you on Vice President Biden being this intellectual scholar, right. strong guy who's going to take right, Donald sh- Trump in the ring. I they're going to said cerebral. That was actually probably the wrong word. What they're going to try to sell you on and what they're hoping works in these Midwestern states that will decide the election, that Joe Biden's just another guy. He's, he's just like yes. you and me. Right. He, he can connect with that person, that working class family who they're not fond of being lectured to or outsmarted or outstrength, if that's even a word. They want someone who they can relate with. They want someone who's just like them. And Vice President Biden, in many respects, is that. So I think that humanizing message was really important, and they needed to achieve that. If they did nothing else that week, they needed to achieve uh, that humanization. Harder to do that with President Trump. And it should be interesting how his campaign continues to try to frame Biden, because I think two areas that have not worked, the fact that he's this Trojan horse of the radical left, right? because that those attacks really don't land with the American voter when you try to do two degrees of separation. These people are controlling him and, and this is what it's going to be. And the other thing is, and time will tell more on this one, that he's somehow responsible for the unrest in these cities because that's happening right now. It's happening under this administration. The divide is happening in this window from 2016 to 2020, sure, there's always divisiveness, but it's very pronounced right now. And somehow attributing that to a potential Joe Biden America, quote unquote. I think those two frames do not work. We will see if they gain more traction moving forward, but you need to hit Joe Biden on the issues. You need to hit him on his record. You can't hit him on fabricated sort of, sure, they could be true, but we don't know them to be true type issues. Right. And it hasn't been very record based. I wouldn't be surprised if it moves toward that. If if President Trump gets a, a, a booklet from an advisor where he can look at some of the areas where uh, Joe Biden has had shortfalls in his very long congressional and then vice presidential career. Um, but when you talk about people who don't want to get lectured to, I, I mean, I think that's a critical element in the election of Donald Trump, who is elected as something of a common man, or at least someone who appealed to a common man, and even for all the ways that he is extraordinarily uncommon. I mean, and-, and Yeah, which and, is remarkable. Remarkable, but it worked. Joe Biden is the first Democratic nominee for president since Jimmy Carter to not be Ivy League educated. And I actually think this is important. I think that there's an appeal to that. And I, I think Joe Biden has a story that no one could- not be moved by. And I, I think that it, the, the fact that he's experienced vulnerability, the fact that he's experienced humility, the fact that he even stumbles on the campaign trail, these are all things that work against the narrative that Hillary Clinton was, you know, that worked against her, which was that she was robotic, which was that she had an automatic political instinct to answer every question with the most precise 
political uh, tone and she wouldn't miss a word. And to that extent, it may have damaged her. And v Vice President Biden is not that nominee. And we've spent a lot of time on the podcast differentiating the two of them. I, I think that is the most central. And I think that is why Democrats have some hope with the new nominee. We talk about swing voters and energy and base so much on this podcast. And the swing voters very much in the 2016 election were those who were choosing between the lesser of two evils, who broke drastically in President Trump's column. This time, every single poll would indicate that Vice President Biden beats President Trump in the lesser of two evils battle because he's less unlikable. And you mentioned it, he stumbles, he, he gets knocked down, he picks himself back up. The attacks that really landed on Secretary Clinton in the last campaign were when President Trump would bring up things like holier than thou and sure. attacks like that where it was, yeah, that's true. She's trying to act like she knows better than everyone else and can lecture us on morals when in reality, everyone knows better than that. No politician is the most moral human being or, or knows better than anyone else. It's just the fact that they're in the position uh, to campaign on stuff like that. So I think that really does play in, in Biden's favor. And you're right, it's been a while since we've had someone who is like that. And maybe a part of the Biden candidacy that was so appealing to Democrats, sure, people may wonder, how could you nominate someone so not energetic to face off against this ridiculous figure, this person who we've never seen before in political history? Maybe calmness and a lack of action, per se, is exactly what's needed. Time will tell, but right now that appears to be working. I want to look at a couple of headlines from the last week in the campaign trail, and this is something that we want to move toward as we move along, and we believe that we'll be getting a lot more campaign news as we get closer and closer. And as we alluded to earlier in the podcast, the later we get, the crazier these things may happen. You will recall last time when James Comey, the FBI director, announced that he was reopening a case into Hillary Clinton 11 days before the election, and that had a massive, um, massive shake on things. This week, we're looking at Joe Biden, who released his numbers in August. He raised $365 million that shattered Barack Obama's September 2008 uh, record, and it's an enormous number. The second headline is a series of scandals Nancy Pelosi and the salon. This is something that I just believe that the vice president needs to get as far away from the House Speaker as he possibly can. Agreed. Because the image of Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, three of the oldest people in Washington uh, running America, I do not think it's a good image across the board for Democrats and Republicans. Uh, finally, Donald Trump told people to vote twice in North Carolina. And he also is being attributed to having said that war veterans are, quote, losers. That comes from the Atlantic. And one more for you, Facebook, talking about those October surprises, is announcing that they will not run new political advertising a week before the election. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but reaction to some of that news, Emmanuel. So first of all, I would say the Facebook news is positive. Any way in which social media outlets can provide faith to the American people in the integrity of these election results 
that's more positive, more power to you. So the more Twitter and Facebook and outlets like it can do that and not tip the scales per se is a positive and would go against this narrative that big tech is working for Biden right now and censoring all these Trump tweets, you name it, and censoring conservative voices would completely go against that narrative. Number two, figures like Pelosi, even Secretary Clinton, saying that by no means Joe Biden should concede the election, even if he loses. These are bad statements that are going to hurt Democrats at the end of the day. Vice President Biden needs to do everything he can to distance himself from these comments, because this will only motivate the Trump base even more and motivate people in the center to say, that's craziness. Why would I ever go vote for a party that believes in this stuff? And a, a terrible look that an 80-year-old congresswoman, leader of the Democratic Party, feels so safe to go to a salon at 80 years old right. amid COVID-19 while she's telling people in her district not to go out in the streets. So that's something you need to distance from as well. And then the President Trump thing, while he's trying to ensure that his supporters get their votes counted, a very, very difficult way to phrase that statement, basically saying, vote by mail, then go back and then vote again and see if it doesn't count. If you're going to encourage checking up with your elections office to see if your vote was counted, again, power to you. But the way you phrase this, and this is the reason why Twitter has stepped in and censored some of this stuff for election integrity, it's because leading these people into this narrative that the election won't be done properly and then potentially encouraging people into malpractice, which is a felony in these states going to vote twice. It, it, it's, it's leading this entire thing off the ledge and contributes to these doomsday scenarios that you just really don't even like to think of. Finally, the, the veteran comment <laughs> and so many headlines this week, Chris, it's so much to dissect. If a tape of president Trump, publicly denouncing John McCain mm. and saying he prefers people who aren't captured isn't going to move the needle. I really don't think this Atlantic story is going to move the needle. It is appalling. It yeah. would take you aback if true. But we know that Trump has had his way in terms of denouncing stories and saying that certain things are fake and consolidating his base no matter what. So as bad as it may be, if true, I don't think this moves the needle. Yeah, I agree with you. And on the voter fraud issue, this is a president who claimed fraudulent voting in an election that he won, that no one disputed he won. And he still claimed that it was a fraudulent election. So if uh, it doesn't swing his way, then you can, um, you can bet the house that we'll be seeing similar discord. Um, finally, we want to wrap with our down ballot segment, the Massachusetts Senate race. Let's throw it to that. And this is Ed Markey, the incumbent, and Joe Kennedy, the challenger. We asked what we could do for our country. We went out. We did it. With all due respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you. That was Ed Markey, the U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, who defended his seat from Congressman Joe Kennedy III last week. And that was his viral campaign ad in which Markey turned the iconic JFK quote on its head, framing himself as a progressive champion for Massachusetts. In the Democratic primary for one of the Bay State's two Senate seats, Markey handed the Kennedy dynasty its first-ever electoral loss in the state of Massachusetts. The margin was 10 points. 
The 74-year-old Markey, the race's progressive, staved off an insurgent 39-year-old endorsed by Speaker Nancy Pelosi and thus labeled a moderate. The race tells us much of what we ought to know about Democratic politics in 2020. The party's rambunctious progressive arm searches for principle and purpose. In Kennedy, it found a congressman searching for a promotion to the Senate. In Markey, it found a progressive who had never before made his case national. Age is only a number to those who as fervently support the 79-year-old Bernie Sanders as they do the 30-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The race reveals much about the progressive mindset. Underdog and scrappy are two of the critical virtues, and Markey captured both. From the jump of the race, Kennedy outpolled Markey, which the incumbent senator used to his advantage. Markey became an endangered progressive, and he leaned on endorsements from AOC and Elizabeth Warren to launch a gritty comeback. Kennedy was unable to grapple with the party's fierce left, and even his name, which he deployed only in the waning days of the campaign, could not save his fate. To borrow from Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, it was the question, the why am I running question, which Kennedy never answered. Though he will leave Washington in January, Kennedy will find his way back into politics. But look out for Markey. After two national runs, I would not expect to see Bernie Sanders run for president again. Markey, five years, the Vermont Senators Jr., is a natural successor. And that is downtime. An unbelievable Senate race, um, certainly the most intense primary of the cycle and one that we're glad to have broken down for you. And that'll do it for us on The Swing, uh, 60 days away, and we will meet again next week, uh, 10 days closer. We are in the home stretch of this thing. Uh, we are on our way um, toward what will be a very eventful, very consequential election. For Emmanuel Barbari, I'm Chris Baccia. This is The Swing 2020. We thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.